Evening. Come on. Please do turn back in your Bibles to Acts 9, 1 to 19, as we continue to worship the Lord by seeing what he says in his word. So Acts 9, 1 to 19. And this evening in this passage, we are going to see how amazing grace truly is. This passage this evening is here to remind us how amazing grace truly is. It's so amazing that it offends. Sometimes you hear Christians talking about how the gospel is offensive, therefore we don't need to be offensive in our proclamation of it. But have you ever stopped and wondered why the gospel is offensive? It's not because of hell, but because people and sinners get to go to heaven because of Christ. And to kind of illustrate this before we jump into Acts 9, I want us to think about two characters. The first character, Mr. Goodfella. Mr. Goodfella is a stand-up man. He is the guy you want to have as a neighbor, for he is kind, he has patience, and when you're wearing holidays, he takes your bins out for you and he mows your lawn. You trust him to look after your kids if you're away a night. He's been faithful to his wife for 25 years. He gives to charity. And in society's eyes, he's a pretty good fella. But when it comes to God, Mr. Goodfella believes he's got nothing to worry about. Not because he's perfect, because he wouldn't say that. He's humble. But because as God, the old saying goes, God loves a trier. And Mr. Goodfella tries with all his heart. So when it comes to God, he believes that he will be accepted on the basis of his own merits. And then the second character that we will meet is Mr. Up to No Good. He has been a troublemaker since he came out of his mother's womb. And as he's got older, his rap sheet has got longer and his crimes have got more serious. From shoplifting to breaking and entering to drunk and disorderly, you name the petty crime and he has committed it. But the cherry on top of his rap sheet was murder. While drunk, while driving, while he was drunk, he crashes into an oncoming car and kills a family and therefore is sentenced to life in prison. But in prison, he encounters Christians and the gospel message, the good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And that all that Mr up to no good, had to do was rest and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that's what he did by the power of the Spirit. He clinged to Christ and looked outside of himself. And in these two characters, we see the amazingness of grace and the offensiveness of the gospel. For Mr. Up to no good will spend eternity in heaven because of Christ all his sins forgiven, while Mr. Mr. Goodfellow will spend eternity in hell because he trusted in his own merits. And you may ask, why did I start with these two characters? Well, because in Acts 9, 1 down to 19, we will see the amazingness and the offensiveness of the gospel in the story of Saul of Tarsus one of probably the most unlikely converts to Christianity and probably one of the most undeserving, to use his own words, for he is the chief 
of sinners, but because of the grace of God, he is redeemed and he now is in eternity with his God, fully forgiven. So in this passage, we're going to see how amazing grace truly is. We will split the passage up into two scenes. Scene one will be from verses one down to nine. Scene two, verses 10 down to 19. Read along with me in chapter nine. We'll look at verses one and two. And it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went up to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We start with this, but Saul. That is meant to point us back to Acts 8 and verse 1, where we've just seen the murder of Stephen. And we've seen this man, Saul, who was approving of it. He stood over and watched with approving eyes. And so when we read, but Saul, we're meant to have Darth Vader's theme music in our heads. This is not a good start. And in all seriousness, if you were a Christian in the first century and you lived in Damascus and you heard that Saul of Tarsus was heading your way, you would be terrified because of the havoc that he caused in the Jerusalem churches. And then we see this language that he is meant to be performed, like seen as like a raging bull. Uh, one commentator has this class we line. He says, the atmosphere of Saul is rage and murder. He is merciless. If you see it down in there, he says he wants to bring men or women back to Jerusalem. He has no mercy even on the woman. He is this raging bull who hates Christianity, who is heading towards those of the way. Before we look at verse three, I don't think we can pass over the way that these early Christians were described they are identified as people of the way, which must bring to mind John 14 and 6, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These early Christians were known by their emphasis on Jesus being the only way of salvation. Their message was that their hope in life and death was grounded in Jesus Christ alone. It must be said that we can never overemphasize Jesus. We can never talk about Jesus too much, whether talking to ourselves, reminding ourselves of the gospel, or speaking to anyone who will listen about Jesus. Here's a challenge for us in this text. Do people in our lives and the city around us see great fit and say they are people of the way, always going on about grace and Jesus Christ? For that is the heart of the gospel message. And that's what we see these Christians, early Christians in Damascus living out. But back now then to verse three, and just to bring us back into the flow of the story, Saul is like this raging bull charging towards Damascus with thoughts of murder. But then verse three hits. And we'll read verses three down to nine as our next section. 
Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. In verse 3, we see Paul, the charging bull, going towards Damascus, turn into a deer in headlights, completely frozen. And then we see this bright light shines around him and knocks him to the ground, giving this idea of humbleness brought low. Inwardly, he was brought low while he is confronted with Jesus, but outwardly, this sign of all the glory of God shining around him, he can do nothing but fall to the ground. So that's what we see in verses four and five. We see a humbled Saul. I thought about this light and this seeing the awesomeness of Jesus and linked it back to Mark 5. Remember, Steve was preaching through Mark's gospel. And Mark 5 is when the disciples are in the boat and there's a storm and Jesus stands up and says, be still. And then the disciples fear the Lord. And Steve had this class we sang. He said it was like the curtain was kindly getting pulled back and the disciples got a glimpse of the awesomeness and the glory and the all-powerfulness of Jesus, and they trembled. This is what happens, Paul, this light representing the awesomeness of Jesus. Sometimes we forget that Jesus, yes, is fully man, but he is fully God, and when that curtain is pulled back and his glory is shone forward, we can do nothing but hit the ground in reverence. And that's what we see happen to Saul in these verses. And then in verse 5, um, we see Saul call out and say, Who are you, Lord? And he hears the words of the risen Jesus. And Augustine has this class we line that he sums up. He says, It was as the head in heaven was crying out on behalf of the members who were still on earth. It was as the head in heaven was crying out on behalf of the members who were still on earth. Christ is our head and we are his body and through our union with him, we are joined to him so he feels our pain and he cares for us. That's why he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? But why are you persecuting me? We are linked. There's a true relationship there with Jesus. Then we see in verse six, Jesus instructs Saul to go and wait for further instructions. He says, enter the city and you'll be told what to do. So we see this raging bull is now a tamed lamb of God, a tamed sheep of the God by the grace of God. But we can't pass over um, the effects of Jesus' awesomeness being revealed to Saul and those surrounding him. We see in verse 7, the men around him were likewise speechless. We see that Saul is physically blinded by the light and that he can barely walk. 
is that he needs help going to the city. And then in verse 9, we see these words that he could neither eat nor drink. What a scene. Again, this is the same Paul. Sorry, if I say Paul and Saul, I'm mixing up the names. But Saul here becomes Paul, so just bear with me. So this Saul is the same guy who writ 2 Corinthians 4 and 6. Do you remember that scene when he says in salvation or conversion, what happens? Creational light shines into the darkness of sinful hearts. He must be speaking from experience. Though it's true for all of us, this creational light shines into our hearts and we are made alive in Christ. But he experienced a slight glimpse of this creational light beaming on him on the road to Damascus. What a scene how powerful, how great is the Lord that we serve. And so from these verses, I just want to have us reflect on two comforting truths, two comforting truths. The first truth that I want us to see is that God graciously moves towards us in salvation. God graciously moves towards us in salvation. Reading this story, there was no way that Saul was on his way to persecute the Christians and thought, you know what? I'm going to give this Jesus guy a go. You know what? I'm not going to persecute them. No, the Lord moves towards him. The Lord knows his sheep and he goes for him and he gets him. So there was nothing in Saul that made him special. Rather, if we think of like human minds, there is no way that he deserved to be saved. Paul was the chief of sinners in his own words. And so Luke is implicitly showing us this idea that this man, humanly speaking, should not be saved and could not save himself. But by the grace of God, he is. And before we start to look down our noses at Saul, the same could be said for me and for you. There's nothing special within us that made God choose us. Why did he choose us? Because of his free, sovereign, gracious will. He lavished his grace upon us, not because of anything within ourselves, but because of his own free will. The Lord is gracious and merciful. That is who he is. And so how does this truth comfort us? Because it's going to be a hard truth to think about the sovereignty of God in salvation, specifically in conversion. Well, if we can grasp it, it helps us move, and if we can grasp that it was God who moves towards us first, therefore it is then God who holds us fast. Think about the imagery of a father crossing the road with his son. If the son is holding the father's hand, there's a good chance that he'll probably let go because little boys like to wander off. But if it's a loving father, he holds on tightly and he gets him across the road. So if we couldn't save ourselves, we cannot lose ourselves. Christ holds us fast. In his hands, none can snatch us out of him. And therefore, this allows us to rest in this truth. Rest in knowing that the emphasis is placed on Christ who is able to bear that burden. For he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. In him, we are secure. So the first truth that we see is that God graciously moves towards us in salvation. The second point 
I want us to see comes from verses 4 and 5 when Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Um, And then whom you are persecuting, talking about himself. This tells us that Jesus is with those who are being persecuted. Or we could say it this way, Jesus is with those who are hurting or going through hardship. We are united to Christ, and he cares for us. He cares for those who are hurting. So if you are in Christ this evening, know that you are not alone. Christ knows and feels your pain and cares for you. He calls you to come to him for rest, for he is able and willing to sustain you. He may not lift that hardship, but he will give you the grace to get through it. He will sustain you. He is the good shepherd who came to bind up the injured sheep. He cares for us. So two comforting truths that we see in verses 3 and 19. God graciously moves towards us in salvation and Jesus cares for you who are hurting today and he will sustain you. Then we come to scene two where we see Ananias and Saul and Jesus interact. Scene two is from verses 10 down to 19 but the first section we'll look at is verses 10 to 14. So read along with me. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, um, Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered the Lord, I have, heard many, I, have heard, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So the first thing I want us to realize or, or notice is why Ananias is shocked that Jesus has come to him in a vision and called him to go seek out Saul of Tarsus. It goes back to if we put ourselves in the shoes of first century Christians living in Damascus, there's no way that you think Paul is coming to have fellowship with you. He is the same Saul who has caused havoc and watched many of your brothers and sisters in Christ probably be stoned to death. So there's, there's, there's no... No way in a million years that Saul would be called a Christian. So that is why Ananias responds in that way. Which then leads us to the second thing that I want us to see in verses 10 and 14. And that is the amazing grace of God in these verses. Especially in light of verse 13 and 14, when Ananias talks about how he has heard many things about um, Saul of Tarsus and how he has did many great evils. Here Luke is plainly showing us why Saul was such an unlikely convert to Christianity. He was a persecutor of the church. He hated it. He had done much evil, but by the grace of God, he is forgiven. 
And it, this makes us think, when, he, when Ananias says, but he has did much evil, think of the song we just sing, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That's the gospel truth that Paul clinged to. Here we see this amazing grace of God at work in the life of Saul of Tarsus. And then the link back to my opening story, we could say instead of Mr. Up to No Good, it was Saul of Tarsus. He was the persecutor of the church, the approver of Stephen's death. Now here in Damascus to do likewise to Ananias and any other believers had not the Lord not stopped him by his grace. We see the amazing grace working out in the life of the chief of sinners as he embraces him. Those words that are in John's gospel stand true, where it says, all that come to him, he will not cast out. That includes the worst, the foulest, the most unlikely of converts. If you come to Jesus, he will not cast you out. Maybe if you're switched on, you say, well, doesn't that contradict your truth that we brought out in scene one, that God graciously moves towards us? No, God graciously moves to dead sinners. Think about it. We're dead in our sins and trespasses, and he moves towards us, and he makes us alive in Christ. He gives us the faith. He gives us the eyes to see. That's what happens in 2 Corinthians 4 and 6. What happens? The Spirit illuminates our understanding that we can see clearly who Jesus is. That's what happens to Saul in Tarsus. He goes from thinking that Jesus was this liar, lunatic, who thought he was the Messiah, to his mind is opened, his eyes are opened, and he sees Jesus as the true Messiah, the, the, the one who came to sin, save sinners. So it doesn't contradict. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both taught in God's word, and they are beautiful truths. I do like the, the, the words of the hymn writer. He kind of sums up what happens with the vilest of sinner as he comes to Jesus. It says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. This is the heart of the gospel message. Guilty sinners come to Jesus by faith and he washes them by his blood and clothes them in his righteousness. Why? Because of grace. Moving on then to verses 15 and 16. Read with me as it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We see Ananias' protests fall on dead ears. For Saul was Jesus's, and he had prepared beforehand to use him for his glory. I love the contrast between verse 14 and verse 16. We see in verse 14 that Paul came to Damascus seeking to stamp out the name of Jesus, to persecute those who called upon the name of Jesus, where the Lord is going to use him now to bring people to Jesus, to exalt the name of Jesus. In the gospel, we aren't only this saved by grace, but God graciously uses us 
for his glory. He saves us, and then he calls us to walk in newness of life. Every person in the kingdom of God has a role. We all have works that were prepared beforehand. So we're called by grace, and then we live by grace. And in these verses, we see this liberating and strengthening truth. So in verses 15 to 16, we're going to see this liberating and strengthening truth. And that liberating and strengthening truth is, as instruments of God, we are not meant to rely on our own strength. When Jesus said that Saul would be a chosen instrument of his, he did not mean that Saul would go forth in his own strength, but rather he was an instrument of God, and therefore God would be the actor Saul would be sent forth in the strength and power of the Lord Jesus. He would be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That is the liberating truth that we are not called to rely on our own strength. And then there's a second layer to this liberating and strengthening truth. And it is that Saul was not this super Christian. There was nothing extraordinary about Saul And that's why the Lord chose him to suffer much for the name of Jesus. But rather, Saul is just like any other Christian who would endure hardship and trial, not in his own strength, but rather in his weakness. For it would be the power and grace of Jesus that would sustain him. He is being called to depend upon the Lord. He is God's instrument, and God will supply his strength. Again, think about 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. Paul, or Saul, writing these words says, in his weakness, God's power is made perfect. He therefore goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's nothing super extraordinary about Saul. Here's a redeemed sinner like me and you who cling to Christ and in his weakness, God's power was made perfect. So here is this liberating and also strengthening truth for it takes our eyes off ourself and makes us look to Jesus. Sometimes when we think about the gospel and grace, we believe that we have been saved by the gospel and God's grace, but all of a sudden we're left by ourselves and we have to endure all these things by keeping the law. Absolutely not. That's not what these verses are saying. We will endure and we will do good works by resting in Christ. Our endurance and our good works flow from our life-gaining union with Jesus Christ. So I want us to see if we want to be strong in our walks, let us boast in our weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon us. In our weakness, we will glorify God. We will exalt his name and his amazing grace. Verses 17 then down to 19. Read with me. So Ananias Um, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. 
Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. The first thing I want us to see in these verses is Ananias welcoming Saul into the Christian fellowship. What these words, brother Saul, must have been a sweet balm onto his soul. Think about it. Saul has just been humbled. He's blinded. He cannot see. He's praying. He's waiting. He has seen this vision that this man, Ananias, will come and restore him. Imagine the moment a man walks in and puts his hands upon him and says, brother Saul, what glorious words. And what a beautiful imagery of the family of God where we see that all are welcome, all are made new. Ananias doesn't look at Saul as the persecutor of the church, but rather he sees him as a brother. The gospel brings reconciliation vertically, so firstly with God, and then secondly, horizontal. If I was to ask you to look who's beside you and who's behind you, we'd see that we're all from different walks of life. But in the gospel, we have been reconciled. We can call one another brothers and sisters. That's the beauty of the gospel. All are welcome. All are called to come and receive. Receive freely. No charge, but Christ alone. The second thing that I want us to see is um, when... Um, Ananias lays his hands on him and we see Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And you may be asking yourself, what is it to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What's it mean? What's it all about? Well, it links us all the way back to Acts chapter one, where we see that Jesus tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. This ties in well with verses 16 and Paul being a chosen instrument of God and God working through him. The idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit was a benefit that new covenant believers have. Think about in the gospel when Jesus says, I must leave that I may send my spirit to be your comforter. And then also in Acts 1, what, is the, what are they being empowered to do? They're being empowered to witness about Jesus So again, tying in, Saul will be an instrument of God, but it'll be God working through him. You likewise, because you're a new covenant believer, have the spirit of God dwelling within you. And so as you seek to witness, as you seek to live for the Lord, you do it not in your own strength, but in the strength and might of the Lord. And then thirdly, we see this restoration, this physical restoration as the scales fall off Paul's eyes and he regains his sight in verse, this is the latter half of 17. And then in verse 18, we see this fourth thing. Um, we see, as Calvin says, Saul sought to nourish his soul before nourishing his body. So you see the ordering there um, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and then taking food, he was strengthened. Saul sought to nourish his soul first for baptism is a means of grace. In our baptism, it reminds us of the gospel hope that we have been united 
to Jesus and being united to him, we have died with him and we have been risen with him. And in that death, our old self has been killed. Our sins have been left in the grave and we have been resurrected to newness of life, now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so then we see he takes food and he is strengthened. And as we come this to the end of this section, I want us to see one comfort that leads us into an exhortation. So one comfort from this verse that leads us into an exhortation. We see that the Lord uses fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as a way to comfort us. We see that Ananias was sent to comfort Saul. You see it, he says when he comes in, it wasn't just by his own accord, he says, Jesus sent me. The Lord has ordained other believers and specifically the local church so that we may be gathered together to encourage one one another. Church is just not another social club, but rather it is a means that the Lord has ordained to nourish and sustain his children. That's why the author of Hebrews commands that the saints do not forsake the local gathering. I remember an older minister used the analogy, you've probably heard it before, about coals in a fire. And in the fire, the red hot, but if you take one coal out and you set it by itself, it grows cold. And that's what the local church is like. We need one another. We need to gather each Lord's Day to receive the ordinary means of grace. We need to hear the preached word. We need to sing God's word. Think of Colossians and Ephesians. We sing God's word to encourage one another. We need to be together to hear uh, like Rebecca pray for the world because it encourages us. The local church is a good gift from the Lord. So take comfort this evening that the Lord cares for you and that is why he has brought you to church this evening so that you may be nourished, that you may be sustained in your walk. And how does this then lead us into an exhortation? Well, we want to be people who seek to point others to Jesus. We want to be part of a local church because we believe it's God's good design for us. We want to be those who pray for other members. We want to be those who care for them. Like Simon said this morning, we want to ask people, how are you? And then we want to actually remember and pray for them because we care for them because we believe this is the way, one way that God has ordained that believers will be encouraged and upheld by his grace. That's why at Great Fic, we practice meaningful membership. It's rooted from God's words. And so this evening, we've seen many things. And as we step back from Acts 9, 1 to 19, let me give you one word of warning. You may be sitting here this evening and comparing your conversion to Saul's conversion. I want to stop you there, for that is dangerous. That will make you doubt. We're not meant to do that. For the form of Saul's conversion is different than yours, but the substance is the same. That 
what does that mean? What do I mean, form and substance? What I mean is, well, Saul was saved on the road to Damascus in the first century. I was saved, I don't know, like six years ago in Corian Baptist. That was the form, the experience. But the substance was the same. Saul was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The same gospel that saved Saul saved you. What this passage is not meant to do is make you doubt whether you're truly converted, but it's it's meant to make you stand back and praise the Lord and be in awe of how amazing grace truly is. How amazing grace truly is that it saved a wretch like Saul and a wretch like me, and a wretch like you. How amazing is grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is slow to anger, full of mercy and grace. We thank you that you first loved us for we would not love you if you had not. We thank you that while we were still rebels against you, you broke into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and united us to your son that we went from being rebels to beloved children. And as we sing this hymn, Amazing Grace, May we sing it with worshiping tongues and lips, thanking you for the grace that you have worked in our life, thanking you for the hope of the gospel by which we cling to and which we live in light of as we go into your week, knowing that we are weak, but your grace is sufficient for us. Thank you, O Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we will stand and sing Amazing Grace that kind of emphasizes what we've been looking at. It teaches us how amazing grace truly is. We will stand and sing when the musicians start to play.
Now, as we go into the week ahead, let the words of 2 Corinthians 13 and 14 ring in our ears. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the love of the, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.